Now let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, shall we? 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 6. So we're resuming where we left off in December. Passage before us says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as people, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with grateful hearts because of what you have done in giving up your very son who died on the cross for us so that we could be freed from the guilt within, the sins that um, marked our lives and the law that condemned us day after day and moment after moment. Lord, we are free from the judgment that comes from the law, from the guilt that it produces within us, and from the sins and the punishment related to those sins. We are free. Thank you for the beloved Savior, our Lord who died on Calvary and rose for us and now intercedes for us at the right hand of God. We praise you. We praise you for your word that points us to Christ, that calls us to love him and love each other. And as we sang, it creates in us more and more longing for you. Thank you for that. And thank you that we're able to meet this morning. Some of us struggle to get out of bed because we had a rough night or even a rough past week and we felt so discouraged, but here we are and we are so grateful that the desire to meet overcame the desire to stay in bed or the desire to do anything else. That's because the desires you plant in your children, Lord, are fueled by you. And at the end, you triumph. And we praise you for that. And we praise you that we can go through this verse together and learn together and rejoice together in the precious and wonderful name of our Lord, I pray. Amen. So let's look at this. Um, you know, when we looked at the church for the past few weeks and we saw that the church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, we looked at the church, and I'm sure some of you, as I have many times, looked at the church and say, wow, what a model. Can we ever be like that? Can we be like the early church? And we need models. And that's why we have scripture. Scripture points us to a model to pattern ourselves after. Uh, but models have a downside. The downside is that we can look at a model and think to one of two things. I can't do this. And just walk away. Or we can think, hey, this is doable. We can do this. Both of those positions, both of those ideas are wrong. Now, it's interesting that Paul, writing to the letter, uh, his letter to the Corinthians, says this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, when he speaks about himself being a model. He says this, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So what is Paul saying here to the Corinthians? If you want to know what a Christian is like, look at me. And it may seem boastful, but Paul is saying this because the Corinthians had come to the point of being boastful and thinking that their Christianity was the right kind of Christianity. While divisiveness and arrogance and sin was were rampant in the church, they were saying, it's okay. And that's the danger of not having a model. In other words, you can go in any which direction and just say, this is okay. I'm a Christian. Uh, the other day, I was listening to someone who claims to be a Christian, and he was wearing um, the attire of a Muslim, and he was at a mosque, and he was praying with other um, uh, other Muslims. And when they interviewed him, they said, aren't you a Christian? He said, yes, I am. But 
There are many ways to God. See, that's what happens when we don't have the word and when we don't have a model, we can come up with a whole bunch of ideas and therefore it becomes pluralistic. Truth is not plural. Two plus two cannot be five, six, seven, eight. Two plus two is four. It's exclusive. And the truth is exclusive when it comes to the gospel, especially. So what is a Christian? Look at me, Paul says. What is the church? We have the model before us. And that's why we we stayed on Acts chapter 2, verse 42, for the last few weeks. And the downside of having a model is this, is not only can we be discouraged, but the downside is that we can believe that we can do it in our own strength. So we can look at a life like Paul, or even look at Jesus. Some people say Jesus is a model to follow. And uh, I can do that. We can be like Jesus. Pelagius, who lived in the fourth century, believed this, uh, this idea. He said, within all of us, we have the capacity to follow the law. That we can all be Christians. Of course, Augustine challenged that. And he said, absolutely not. What does the scripture say? These were both bishops, one of Ireland and one of Hippo, North Africa, Egypt, and they both were not in agreement. One was saying, we can do it. We can do it with our strength. The other was saying, no, impossible. We cannot be Christians on our own strength. It's impossible. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus gives us a very, very clear answer. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 23 to 25, we read Jesus speaking to his disciples. This is what he says to, these were, remember that these were Jews, always keep this in mind, they were Jews. And, um, and they had a certain understanding of what the kingdom of God was like, all right? They, they felt that Israel was a kingdom and they were already part of the kingdom. So this is what Jesus says, truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So what is he saying? He's saying what every one of us likes, which is money. And that means everyone. What each one of us desires, which is a sense of security, comfort, we put money aside, we look at buying RSPs or having a pension fund, whatever, having a savings, that kind of thinking prevents us from entering the kingdom of God. That's, all he, that's what he's saying. I don't know. There were times I would say to my wife, honey, because I would read this verse and I'd say, honey, you know, maybe you should just sell everything and, and just go somewhere and live, you know, just like the like Jesus did. And she would turn to me and say, honey, are you out of your mind? Right? Because that's the proper response. She was right. Thank God, you know, that, that's the answer I needed. But yet, that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, for anybody who wants to have money, for anybody just, and that's everybody, for anybody who desires that, it's easier for a camel, this big beast, to go through the eye of a needle, it doesn't matter if it's a door in the gate of Jerusalem or the needle itself, regardless, you can't go through. It's easier for that, for that to happen than for anyone who wants money to go into heaven. That's why the disciples, when they heard this said, they were very astonished, just shocked, and said, then who can be saved? Who? No one. You can't do it on your own. No one can. No one can be a Christian. Not the way the Lord wants us to be. Jesus raised the bar to an all-time high. That's why they were shocked. They were deep down troubled by the words of Jesus. Now, does Jesus leave them in despair? Absolutely not. Because in verse 26, right after that, he goes, Jesus says this, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, what is he saying? 
what you cannot become on your own and we cannot, I will make you. That's the key. The key is not to walk away with despair and say, wow, I can't be a Christian. Neither is the answer, I can do it. The key is to discover grace. We just sang about it. Grace, grace, marvelous grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. I am showing you what is required to enter heaven. Heaven is only for the righteous, the sinless. That's what heaven is for. But I will make you that way. I, what is impossible for you, and you have to see it as impossible. Because if we don't, we depend on our own strength. It's grace. So what to be the church that God wants us to be, it's how? By grace. To be the Christian that God desires you to be, it's by grace and nothing but grace. The moment you think you can do it, and I went through that over and over in my Christian walk. The moment I thought, I can do this, I'm doing this. I sank like Peter sank that very moment. But thankfully, I never sank beyond the reach of the Lord's hand because he would pick me up again and I would resume my walk by grace. It's always by grace and never, never with our own strength. So we're going to look at this verse in 1 Peter chapter 4. And we're going to look at the theme, does a suffering Christian lack faith? Because oftentimes this is the idea that um, is portrayed. I mean, I don't have Facebook. My wife does. And every time there's a kind of a, a, a posting, it says, you know, I may the blessings and the prosperity and all the healing and all the wealth uh, God wants to give you come into your life and you see people giving thumbs up and, and, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, uh, what else do you do? I don't know what to do on Facebook, but anyways, you're, you're, you're saying amen to it and a whole bunch of, that, that's the kind of stuff that you see on those posts. And we're going to see uh, if the message conveyed in that is correct, which is, you know, if you're suffering, if you're not wealthy, if you're sick, if you are uh, facing hardships, well, there's something wrong. There's either faith that's missing. Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe maybe God is just being very uh, hard with you because you are you need it. And all these kind of things that pop into our mind when we are suffering, when we're going through a hard time. But before we do, we need to look at a word which Peter presents in this verse. And I'd like to just unpack that word just a little before we actually answer this question. The word is preach. For the gospel has, for this purpose, been preached. I'd like to look at that just for a moment. Uh, and, and before Jesus ascended to heaven, he commanded his disciples. He gave them a mandate, an impossible mandate. It's called the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. You may have heard and read this verse many times, but this was just impossible. Jesus, Jesus said this, go therefore... Make disciples of all nations. Now, they didn't understand that at first. They just stuck with the Jews. But eventually, you know, Paul did it. And they slowly saw the gospels spreading throughout the nations. So go and make disciples, not just of Jerusalem, not just Judea, all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the covenant. We spoke about that. When he says these words, when you baptize them, remind you're baptizing them into the covenant. Right? That's what it means into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to follow all that I command you. Wow. <laughs> so everybody in the world, go and teach them everything I've taught you. And then, so they said, how are we going to do this? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, this is an impossible task. How do you do this? There's just no way. We can't follow this. And then Jesus says, I'm with you. Don't worry about it. It's going to get done. And when you look at the last 2,000 years, you look at the Roman Empire, which was a powerful empire. It's gone, but the church still is. You look at dictatorships. They come and go. The church still remains. Communism. What's happening in China? You know, first they give a bit of freedom. Then when they found out all where the churches are, they crack down on them again. That's what's happening right now. Burning churches, 
making sure that the communist manifestos and the Bibles, that's the only Bible they can read, making sure that the picture of the chairman of the communist party is in every church, all that kind of stuff. That's what's happening. But the church is going to survive. The church survives communism. The church survives dictatorships. The church survives everything. He says, go and make disciples. Go. How do we make disciples? How do we do that? The tool the Lord gave the church is a weak, insignificant. I've always often looked at this tool. I said, "Hey, Lord, this makes no sense. Preaching, really? That's the tool we have? I mean, this great mandate that is greater than us. And you just give us a weak tool like this. Preaching. Really? Have you often said that? I have. And preaching what? Well, the gospel, Peter says. And the gospel runs counter to culture. Culture says one thing. The gospel says completely something else. And when the gospel is abandoned, the church embraces more of the culture. And the culture, you could say, is the water around us, and we're in the boat. And when we let the water in, can't tell the difference between us and the water. And that's why many Christians resemble the world, the culture, because we take less of the gospel. But when we go back to the gospel, when we repent of that and embrace the gospel and ask the Lord to illumine us to the beauty, the power, the value, and the supremacy of the gospel, then the world is pushed back out. And then we're walking in the gospel. Paul loved the gospel so much that when he met with the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, this is what he says to them. And he said this so that they would do the same. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. He stuck to that. That was a very pluralistic society. They had many gods. They had many philosophies. In the time of Rome, Rome allowed any kind of philosophy, any kind of religion, providing you mentioned that Caesar is kurios, he's Lord. You can do anything you like, but Caesar is Lord. Well, the Christians, they would say, Caesar is Caesar, and we give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but Jesus is kurios. He is Lord in the most absolute sense. And for that, they suffered. However, they stuck with the gospel. Paul stuck with the gospel. And they did it through the preaching of the gospel. That's how you stick with the gospel. You preach to yourself every single day. And we've shared with others. We've preached to others. This is a moment when God has afforded me the opportunity to preach the gospel to the church, his flock. And to carry out this task, much grace is required. We can't do it in our own strength. I can't do this. You have no, you have no idea how many times I said to myself, I don't want to preach. My wife knows a few of them, but I've said that multiple times to myself because the preaching is most difficult because you realize how insignificant and how weak this tool is and how monumental is the task. How do we preach? How can this tool be effective in opening hearts to the message of the gospel? We don't understand how it works. It's a mystery. And, you know, Paul would remind the church of the supremacy of the gospel and how important preaching the gospel was. And, for example, in the letter of Corinth, we read these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, baptism is important. It follows the uh, believer's acceptance of the gospel. But Paul says, I'm going to stick with baptism, uh, the preaching rather, preaching the gospel and not with cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made of no effect. Now, Paul had cleverness of speech. He was erudite. The disciples, the 12 disciples primarily were fishermen, tax collectors. They were not schooled, but not Paul. Paul was schooled not only in theology, but in philosophy. He knew Greek philosophy. He knew the Greek language well. He, I mean, he had a very, very vast knowledge. And yet Paul says, when I come to preach the gospel, it's the gospel alone. It's Jesus 
The Lamb of God died for sinners so that sinners could be made saints. That's the gospel. It's the work of God. But why preaching? We need to answer that question before we exit this text. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why preaching? Can't we do it any other way? In our cultures, preaching is sneered at. The reason why it's sneered at is because if you come across as though you share truth in an absolute sense, you're seen as arrogant. Right? If you say, well, I think, I believe, this is my opinion, the person will answer, well, that's your truth. And that's what we have today is this very pluralistic, relativistic kind of environment. So if you say God's word says, wow, there's a reaction. And there was reaction in the days of Paul as well. Uh, just look at when he entered into a Greek world like Athens. There was reaction against that absolute presentation of the truth. So, and, and in many cases, I understand why people resist preaching because those who preach come across as though they have a direct line with God. They'll come across and saying, last night God told me and I heard this from God. And as I was walking, I, God spoke to me. And, and, and then they put themselves on a pedestal compared to everyone else. And many people fall for that when really God's word is the Bible. It's scripture. And we just need to exegete what God is saying clearly in his word. The word has one meaning, many applications, but one meaning. And we need to discover that meaning as we read it. And we're going to be doing that today. Biblical preaching is nothing more than really this. A beggar telling other beggars where the pantry is. That's it. A beggar telling other beggars where the pantry is. So when you meet someone, you're not speaking to them from a pedestal, from some kind of a high elevated position. Hey, I know the truth and you don't. We never do that. That's erroneous. Where we come from is this. I am a beggar like you're a beggar. And I know where the bread is. That's it. Uh, the other day, someone called me and said how they were really blown away with the, the presentation of the gospel and, and how, thank God, he uses you to do that. I said, well, you're thanking a screwdriver. You know, it's like if you get a piece of furniture, it's beautiful. Um, you don't say, wow, can I, see, can I see your screwdriver? Can I see your saw, your hammer? I want to see these tools. I'm really, I want to thank them, right? What you do is you thank God. You thank the carpenter. So in this case, when God uses preaching, Paul never expected thanks because it is a thankless job. His thanks was when people turned to the gospel. That's our thanks. When people embrace the word, when people say yes to Jesus Christ, when they love him and they abandon their sin, that's the reward. Why preaching? Because God has determined that preaching is the way to bring the gospel into people's lives. That's it. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. So no matter how much philosophizing, no, much how, no matter how deep they, people go dive and try to understand the meaning of life. The more they dive, the more they come up with these empty positions that leave people in despair. Now what? Now listen to this. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message. It's foolish. Foolishness, the message of the preached to save those who believe. So the message itself is foolishness and the instrument preaching is weak. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ, what? Crucified to Jews, a stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness. That's the method. That's the method. There's nothing else. Praise God for this method. Now let's execute the text. We are called to preach the gospel alone. Peter says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached. We're called to make known the gospel. If we're not declaring the gospel, all we're doing is talking. It may be a great talk. 
And uh, it may be an interesting talk. It may, it may titillate the ears of the hearers, but it's just a talk. What saves is the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. And Paul emphasizes this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, as I read earlier, but to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, not with cleverness of speech. The gospel truth must never be obfuscated, clouded, eclipsed, covered, manipulated with rhetoric or philosophy or anything else. Uh, souls are in danger and they need the gospel. The wrath of God rests, abides on every soul. And they need, they need to hear the gospel. The last thing they need is talk. The lost need the gospel and not words. Paul had all the knowledge and the skills to impress people. He did. He could have impressed them. And he could have said, all right, this is the message. How can I make this message more attractive? How can I embellish it so that the hearers will listen to this and they will be drawn to it? He could have done that. But he goes, he refused to do that. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come as someone superior in speaking ability or wisdom. He could have done. That was his temptation every time. Paul was tempted. You see, when someone doesn't have schooling, there's no temptation. He has to be simple in the presentation. But the more educated you are, the greater the temptation. As I proclaim to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his thing. And I also was with you in weakness. Why was he weak? In, in fear and in great trembling. Because he realized that the message of the gospel was foolishness. He knew that. And he knew that the preaching tool that God had given him was weak. <laughs> weak, foolish. How's anyone going to get saved, Right. My message and preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Now, the Greeks loved wisdom. They'd spent their days debating and conversing and discussing, looking at the different kinds of philosophies of life. See, I didn't do that, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of mankind. So they wouldn't say, wow, did you see Paul's wisdom? Did you see how he explained that? Did you see how he unraveled that mystery? No. It was this. Those who believed would believe in the message of the gospel, on the power of God that's in the gospel. Paul was extra careful to present the gospel alone by preaching it without embellishment. Paul simply preached the gospel so that their faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on God's power. See, to discard the message of the gospel. Let's say you meet someone and you say, I'm not going to present the gospel I'm going to talk, talk to them about my testimony. I'll say, you know what Jesus did in my life? He took away this and he took away that. And, or you'll say, for example, you know, if you want peace, if you want joy, just, just say yes to Jesus. You know, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Now, are you, am I saying that that is wrong? No, I'm not saying that. But if you don't come to the gospel, they're still, they still haven't embraced it. The gospel is this. They need to see themselves as Sinners before the law, they stand condemned. And then they need to see that the only remedy is in the cross and not in themselves. It's not, not in their faith, not, not in the way they come to God, not in their religion, not because they light candles, not because they bring a Bible, not because they read the Bible, not because they read the daily bread, not because they come to a certain church, because they believed the gospel. And if they don't understand this, they will hang on to every other thing, which are straws and not to the cross, the only thing that matters. And they'll be lost, and they'll stay lost. To discard the preaching of the cross is to manipulate the gospel, and it is the greatest of all tragedies. The gospel alone addresses our real need. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as people. As humans... We seek immediate fixes to our circumstances, right? We do. I'm a fixer. I love to fix things. Something that doesn't work at home, my wife shows it to me, 
I'm going to fix that thing. That's just the way we are. We like, we like to fix. And, um, you know, if there's a need financially, we're going to fix it. If there's a health issue, we're going to fix it. If there's a relational issue, we'll do our best. We're going to fix it. Now we know that many times what we try doesn't work, but still that's in us. We're going to fix it. And you'll remember in the days of Jesus, when Jesus multiplied bread for that vast multitude, some say there were about 20,000 altogether between women, children, and men. And then the next thing, Jesus disappears. He's gone. And they went looking for him. And finally, they caught up with him. And they said, where, where did you go? Why did you leave us? This is what Jesus said. And he shocked them. This is what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me. By the way, it's John chapter 6, 26 and 27. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate some of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, the Father, God has set his seal. So what is Jesus saying here? Because it took them off guard. Here they are, they're following him, they're, they're looking for him, they now find him. And Jesus is saying, you're looking for me because you want your tummies filled. Now think about it. Most people that you know, probably all, the ones I know, are, are I could say all, including myself, by the way. When we went to God, we went like the prodigal son. Um, I'm going to go, I'm going to get some food, I'm going to get some shelter, and um, I'm going to tell him, my, my, I'm going to tell my father, I'm going to pay back his debt. That's a ridiculous thing because nobody can pay that kind of debt, right? So it's the same thing we do with Lord, I want, I, I want you to help me with my finances. Please, please, Lord, please, can you just heal my wife here? She's sick. Or, or can you just take away this pain out of my life? And then I'll do this for you. I will. So I, I want something from you. Okay. And I'm going to do this. And we go into a transaction, some kind of a negotiation. And they were willing to do that. They were willing to have Jesus as king of Israel because they didn't have a king. They were slaves of Rome. They were willing to have Jesus push out the Romans and then bring prosperity. And they would do anything he wants. Tell us what to do. We'll do it. And Jesus says no. And Jesus still says no. There's people that will come to God on the basis of, oh, like that, that post, that Facebook, Facebook post. I pray blessings on you. I pray wealth and I pray health and I pray everything. And, and what do we say? Yes, yes, yes. And yes, yes. And thumbs up and all that kind of stuff, right? Because we're following the same kind of thinking. It's just ingrained in us. It takes a miracle to see Jesus for who he truly is. It takes a miracle. Otherwise, we're going to follow that kind of thinking. So who is Jesus then? And this is what Jesus says. And he shocks them again. So first he says, no. No, because I'm not that kind of Jesus. This is the Jesus I am. I am not that kind of Messiah. This is the Messiah I truly am. John chapter 6, 53-55. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and you drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Can you imagine how they felt now? What is he saying? They didn't understand that. It says, if you read that chapter, it says, they all left. In fact, it says many only a few stayed behind. Many just walked away. And many even today walk away from the true gospel. The true gospel that is preached with that weak tool of preaching, which is what you do to your friends. And the ones you meet, you share the gospel. And you see them, now I'm not interested, they walk away. But if you were to tell them, listen, you can get rich. I'm telling you, you can get healed. I'm telling you, you can have everything you want in life if you just say yes to Jesus. They'll say yes to that. But if you tell them, look, since embracing the gospel, things have not gone very well for me. There's been persecution. I've been ridiculed. I've been kicked out of my house. I've lost my promotion. I've lost a job, but I trust in him. Well, 
That's not the gospel that people want. And they just walked away. So what is Jesus saying with these words? Eat my flesh. Was he promoting cannibalism? Well, we know that's not what Jesus was saying because nobody was a cannibal in those days. And, and, and that's not the teaching of the gospel. He was basically linking it. And they were Jews. Remember, they were Jews. He was linking it with, with when the, the Jews would eat the lamb and take the blood and apply to their doorpost. That, that incident happened in Israel. I'm uh, sorry, in Egypt for the people of Israel were told, eat the lamb and apply the blood on your door frames. The angel of death will come by at night. Every house without the blood on the door frame will be struck. The firstborn will die. And that's what happened. And every year they would remember that event by celebrating Passover. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the Passover lamb. You have to receive me. You have to believe that I have to die for your sins, shed my blood so that God will see the blood and pass over you when the day of wrath will arrive. Because there is a day of wrath. There's a day of judgment. We spoke about the great white throne judgment. There is a day of wrath. And God sent his son not to condemn the world, but there is a day of condemnation. God sent his son because he wants sinners to repent. But people don't want that. They prefer things. They prefer to fill their stomach with food. But man does not live by bread alone. In fact, if we have bread alone, we die. Right? We die. So the reminder of the gospel is this. That I'm a sinner deserving of judgment. And that God made provision by giving up his son so that I could have eternal life. Jesus didn't come to fix problems. He didn't come to be a miracle worker. He healed. Those are just credentials to show that he was the Messiah. Jesus didn't come to make them rich. No, he didn't. He didn't come to give them all, all the health and all the blessing. He came to die. He came to die so that the unrighteous could be made righteous. So that's our problem in and of ourselves. That's our problem. That's why Jesus says, this is impossible. We cannot even understand this message. We can't unless the Lord opens our minds and draws us miraculously by the spirit of God to Christ. We're not going to go to Christ because we want things. We want a comfortable life. We want security. We want money in the bank. We want things to go well. We want COVID-19 to disappear in and of ourselves. But miraculously, God opens minds through the preaching of the gospel. Hearts are transformed. People start to see the truth and the power of this message. And they let go of the things. And throughout our life as Christians, we're letting go. And we're holding on more and more to the gospel. What a miracle. Only God could do this in our lives. Now, so when Peter was speaking these words to the Christians, they were discouraged. Why? Because the Christians were basically suffering. And that's why Peter says these words. They died, right? They, the gospel was preached to those who are dead. It means they're now dead. And how did they die? Well, in many instances, they died suffering. They died without, um, without dignity. Some were fed to lions. Some were sawed. Some were stoned. They lost their jobs. They lost their homes. And so the Christians were looking at this and saying, but where's the benefit? Where's the good in all of this? There's such suffering when you embrace Jesus Christ, right? Why? Why would these Christians stick it out? Why? I spoke about Ruth last Thursday. Why would Ruth say, your God is my God. Your people are people. Where you die, I will die. I'm going to be there in Israel suffering. <laughs> Who does that? Who embraces the gospel unless the Lord does a work in our lives? There's no other way. If we hope for a better life now, and we see only the gospel in that light, that, in other words, I, took, I, I, I accepted Jesus. Why am I suffering still? I accepted Jesus. Why am I going through a hard time? Why, am I, why do I have health issues if I accepted Jesus? 
why am I still uh, still having trouble in life if I accepted Jesus? That's because the gospel has not been revealed to you yet. That's a normal thing. We all think that way. But when we are, when we believe by faith in the gospel, then those questions will disappear. And you will rejoice in your suffering. In your pain, you will give him glory. People will look at you and see you and be confused, perplexed. Because they will see someone who embraces something that doesn't make sense. And then imagine you die that way, right? Imagine you die sick. Imagine you die suffering. Imagine you die poor. Imagine you die in difficulty. Imagine you die with COVID-19 like my brother did. Imagine you die. People start saying, well, was he a Christian? Did, did, was that Christianity? It doesn't make much sense. The only ones that will think differently will be the ones who have understood grace. See, it's not amazing merit. No. It's not amazing faith. Look at me. I believe, wow, I'm prospering. I'm not sick. Things are going well for me. No. It's amazing grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the power of it. Trusting in Christ does not mean that I will not contract COVID-19. It doesn't mean that I will not get sick. It doesn't mean that I will not die. It doesn't mean that my loved ones won't get sick and die. It doesn't mean that you know, I'm guaranteed a life of prosperity. Doesn't mean, well, not someone, I don't want you to misunderstand me. It doesn't mean I cannot pray for these things. Sure, we can pray, Lord, protect us. Lord, uh, please provide me a job. Or uh, I don't have anything to eat next week. I need your help. You can petition all that, of course. That's not wrong. But to believe that if you don't have any of those things means that your Christianity is lacking or that you have no faith as many try to convey that message, that is false. That is false. Because then that means Paul and everyone else who suffered in the early church for the sake of the gospel and embracing this amazing message did not have faith. The gospel alone gives true life. Let's reread the verse again. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, which right now they're, di- they're dead. They're, they died perhaps on untimely death, a shameful death because they were persecuted and then put to death. That though they are judged in the flesh as people, that was, they died just like everyone else. There was no benefit in their lives. They may live in the spirit according to the will of God. What does that mean? They may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So those who receive the gospel by faith, are alive. They are alive right now, whether they are on earth or whether they are gone to the other side. They are alive. That's why Paul says these words, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whether I'm here or I'm absent, I'm with Christ. They are alive and awaiting the glorious resurrection. But those who are dead now, which means those that don't believe in the gospel, the gospel as presented by Christ, They're dead now, and they're dead tomorrow. They stay dead, completely dead. That's why Jesus in John chapter 10 said these words um, to the Jews who believed that they were God's people. These all believed they were God's people because they were Jews and descendants of Abraham, and they were born in Israel and so forth. And then, of course, those who lived in Jerusalem, they really felt themselves privileged, right? So I told you, he says, in John 10, 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. They testify in which way? They testify that he's the Lamb of God, that he's their Messiah, that he's the one who's going to die. But you do not believe. Now, these were Bible-reading Jews. Think about that, right? These were people who were well-versed in Scripture. But they didn't believe in Jesus because you are not of my sheep. See, only God's sheep will believe in the shepherd. 
You're not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give them what? Eternal life. Now these very sheep, Jesus said, I send you as sheep amongst wolves. He didn't say, I send you as uh, as as lions among wolves. Now that would have been a, a, a good uh, a, a good odds, right? I mean, you're a lion, they're wolves, yes, they're vicious, but I'm a lion. Jesus says, no, no, I send you as sheep amongst wolves. Why? Because you don't need to be a lion. He's the lion. He's the lion who, come, who came as a lamb and died so that his sheep will be given eternal life. Not comfort, not things now, right? But they can have life, true life. They will never perish. You'll never perish. You're going to die. You're going to get sick. Things are going to go bad. But you'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that comforting? That God's people are so secure. They are so alive. That they are, even though they're a sheep amongst wolves, the wolves will not tear them apart. And the one who is like a lion, he's not the lion. Peter says he's like a lion. He goes about roaring as a, he goes about as a roaring lion. Jesus is the only lion. He seeks to devour the sheep. He seeks to devour their faith. And yet he will not triumph. He can't. No one can snatch them from his hand. He gives to his sheep eternal life. That's the reason why Jesus came and died on the cross to give to his people, his flock, his beloved eternal life. Period. Now, let's reread the verse in the light of what we just discovered. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. They died. Though they are judged in the flesh as people, though they died like everyone else, and in fact, in many instances, worse than everybody else, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. God's will is that they live. That we live now and we believe and we live tomorrow awaiting the resurrection as we are with Christ. This is the truth of the gospel. That's why Jesus came. Many in the early church were discouraged, and maybe you are too. Discouraged with your circumstances because you've gotten your eye off of the gospel. Get your gaze back on the gospel. Let the ears that the Lord has given you be opened to the message of the gospel. And as you witness suffering in your life, or maybe in the life of loved ones, or maybe in the life of other Christians, as I did when I saw suffering in my brother's life, and I would look at that and I'd say, Lord, please. Here, do something, right? Now, the Lord never did. The Lord just sustained him in his bed of infirmity. The Lord kept him till the very end. And when he was offered uh, life support, or not life support, but the ventilator, and uh, to, so that he can artificially be kept alive as, as air, as oxygen was being pumped into his lungs, he said, no, I don't want it. Let me go. He had faith in the word of the Lord. That's all you need is faith in the gospel. And that's when you live, whether you are sick or whether you are healthy, whether you have bread or whether you have none, you are rejoicing in whatever circumstance you're going to find yourself because you are alive in Christ. Have you believed in the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus is your savior, that he took your sins so that as a sinner, you could be made righteous. Do you understand that you stand condemned before the law of God and that the wrath of God abides on you until you believe in this gospel? Is this truth in your heart? Or are you still, like the disciples of Jesus' day, looking for some kind of handout from Jesus, some kind of thing that proves that he loves you? He has proved already that he loves the sheep. He laid down his life for them. And if you believe in that, you're one of the sheep. You'll hear his voice. You're going to follow him. And you're going to rejoice in him. Jesus said these words about those that were um, dead in their sins. 
Look at what he says. This is a powerful verse in John 5.25. Truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming and even now has arrived. So it has arrived. It arrived that moment that Jesus is talking about. He's just about to die on the cross. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What is he talking about? He's talking about those who are dead in their sins. Not physically dead. He's not talking about the resurrection here. They will hear his voice and they will live. See, that's the gospel. When you hear it, this amazing miracle takes place. When you hear the gospel, the voice of Jesus comes through that simple message that was preached by Paul, preached by Peter, preached by the church throughout the 2,000 years, and preached today again. The voice of Jesus comes through that message. You hear it. You say, yes, I believe. And you become alive. And then whether things, good things happen in your life or bad things happen in your life, makes no difference. You're going to rejoice. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel them. You're going to feel them. But you're going to rejoice in the hope of eternal life. You are alive. You're alive. My prayer is, that those of you who haven't yet heard that voice will hear it now. And that Jesus will become so real to you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing God you are to have given us such a, a gift gift that words fail to describe, giving up your son so that sinners who deserve judgment, who deserve hell, who deserve your wrath, could be made righteous and fit for heaven. I can't understand this kind of gift. I can't understand the tool, preaching. I can't understand the gospel. It's just remarkable, but I believe in it. But there are those who don't. And so our prayer right now is that you would draw them who are still in darkness. Draw them as you've drawn many of us. Draw them to the sun so they would become alive. That they could hear his voice and be saved and have life in them. I pray this in the wonderful and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>